Broadcasting from the studios of Business Radio X, it's time for Advisory Insights, brought to you by Oberman Law Firm, serving clients nationwide with tailored service and exceptional results. Now, here's your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Advisory Insights Podcast. Well, today we got two special guests with us. There is a lot going on in the healthcare field. Uh, for the mergers and acquisitions, whether it's dental, vets, I, it is all over the place. So I got two um, of our great, great partners at the Uberman Law Firm today, and uh, I want to introduce them. Um, Lauren Mansour and Daniel McBride, both of them do a tremendous job on um, mergers and acquisitions. And, and I, I want to talk to uh, Lauren a little bit first. And the key thing is letters of intent. I know if you're an attorney, you do transactions, uh, you always get, it seems, a signed letter of intent before you really, really have a chance to, to drill down on it. So um, Lauren's going to talk a little bit about um, letters of intent, and then Danielle's going to talk about tax um, my items that are really, really critical in a, um, uh, in a healthcare transition, whether it's a private equity company or it is a um, private sale. So uh, let's, uh, let's start off. Uh, Lauren, uh, tell you what. I want you to take me through some steps that our listeners need to know regarding LOIs. I mean, it's we got stuff on holdbacks, real estate matters. I, I want you, I want you to, to to drill down a little bit uh, you, uh, before I start. We last year we did about a hundred as a firm, about one hundred and thirty-five transactions totaling about three hundred fifty million. So we've seen a lot of stuff come under the uh, the bridge, if you will, last year, and uh, I think we saw a lot of things we don't want to see happen again. So Lauren, tell it, um, talk to the audience, tell me a little bit about letters of intent, what you run into and your problems. Um, and um, hopefully our listeners can pick up uh, a couple pointers. Of course, happy to jump into this topic. I think, um, so a letter of intent kind of varies, right? Sometimes we see letters of intent that are a paragraph long, um, maybe half a page max, and sometimes they're 10 pages. And so there's definitely a lot of variance depending on the transaction. I would say even, I was speaking with a buyer yesterday, even for just a simpler doctor to doctor transaction, I think it's important to have a little bit more than half of a page because you do want to flesh out certain important concepts and just make sure that you and the seller or you and the buyer are on the same page and you're not both spending money on attorneys and bankers and CPAs and and you know spending time going through this process of negotiating a transaction and you are never really on the same page to begin with. So I think that, you know, we don't necessarily have to spend a whole lot of time on the letter of intent, but I think it's important to make sure certain key items like, you know, the obviously the purchase price, possibly even purchase price allocations. Um, what does any post-sale employment look like for the seller? Restrictive covenants, can we agree on those um, at the LOI stage, you know? Is there any real estate involved and have terms been agreed upon? And if so, let's include that. Um, for a buyer, it's very important to have exclusivity language in the letter of intent because you do want to make sure, again, you're kind of investing your time and money into the process. And you want to make sure that the seller is not continuing to speak with other interested parties. Um, and then you also want to make sure there's 
language that is clear that this document is not binding. Um, I think most letters of intent will say that, but we have had clients in the past sign an LOI before we reviewed and it was binding. And when they decided after diligence, they wanted to walk away, they were facing legal action. So um, some important tips, I think that in larger transactions, so when our clients are selling, especially to a large group, um, these letters of intent can be very complex. And I was just looking at one the other day for a client that's selling a group of practices, and she was looking at restrictive covenants that were, you know, not just around her practices, but statewide uh, for any practice that the buyer group owned in any state, that entire state was wiped out for her. And so I think it's important to kind of go through uh, and make sure that you're comfortable and you're aware of the terms um, and kind of before you move forward, because with sellers and if they're talking with big group practices, you're often courting several buyers. And so if you can kind of flesh out a lot of these concepts and make sure that you understand them, um, right? It's it's more than just the purchase price. There's now holdbacks and earnouts and equity involved. And so what do these holdbacks look like? So sometimes we'll have a very large transaction and it'll briefly mention a holdback or the earnout. And what does that mean? Or the equity won't be clearly spelled out. And so we have to ask questions and it's my opinion, better on the front end to say, are there going to be any ties to any of this? Is the equity subject to forfeiture if employment uh, terminates before a certain period or the earnout? How what is it tied to? Do we have to just be employed or do we have to have certain collection uh, levels? Can, that can, we have to- can you explain? So you just hit really on a couple points. One, have you seen a request on a national non-compete? Two, take our listeners through the process of what exactly is an earnout and a holdback? I don't know that I've seen a national non-compete. These are usually groups that are in several states um, that they'll kind of limit to a region, but it definitely can be several states. And a lot of times it's tied to equity. So if you invest with the buyer group, Um, they'll tie you to think, okay, you need to be loyal to this group, right? Now you're invested with us. And so you now, because of the equity, you have to not compete with us, not only around your practices, but around any practices we own. We don't want you to work there. And so sometimes there's circles around every practice they own. And sometimes there's just statewide restrictions. If we own in this state, you cannot operate there. Um, So, which is sometimes not problematic when our clients are looking to retire, but other times it is. Our clients are younger. They still want to work. There's no, never any guarantees, right? And and I think we have to look at things from the worst case scenario, just planning it. And so um, it can be problematic. Um, With respect to your question on holdbacks or earnouts, so in in some occasions, right, a purchase price, let's say 80% of the purchase price is paid at closing. Maybe there's 20% that's paid in an earnout, And that could be part of a purchase agreement or it could be part of an employment agreement. 
Um, but the earnout means, let's say it's a hundred thousand a year for three years, and each year, in order to get a hundred thousand dollars, your practice has to continue to collect a certain level, or it has to grow by a certain percent. And so, in order to get your one hundred thousand dollars for the first year, your practice has to be at a certain collection level, and if it's not, you do not receive that amount. Um, sometimes those earnouts are only tied to continued employment. So as long as you're working there, you would receive it. Um, and we will try to negotiate things like, okay, well, what if there's death or disability? You know, would we get it in those events? Um, but that's what the earnout looks like. And then holdbacks are are similar. Sometimes holdbacks are just based on like operating liability expenses to make sure that the seller didn't leave anything unpaid that the buyer has to pay for. Uh, other times, they're longer-term holdbacks. Uh, they're tied to either employment or some revenue metric, and you would receive that amount as long as the the goal is met. So you mentioned a couple. You mentioned a couple of things. One, invest in a group. Is that where the doctors? Let's say we're, let's say we're talking about a hundred thousand dollar deal. Doctors will take. Uh, $200 and invest that back into the private equity company. Correct. Uh, uh, let's, let's put that on a million dollar scale, right? So the, the doctors are going to take eight, $800,000 put in their pocket and they, or, you know, a percentage and they want to have the equity companies want to have the, um, uh, the, the, the investment back in the group. So the doctor's putting in essentially $200,000 back into their pockets, if you will, for a, 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 whether it's what, A or or C shares you're seeing, A or B share stock? Right. So there's a portion of the purchase price that instead of you receiving that in cash at closing, you will invest it in an entity. And a lot of times with these groups, it may not be the actual buying entity. It may be a group that they formed where all of the doctors are investing into that specific entity. There'll be an operating agreement right? You're governed by the terms of the existing agreements in place. There's never any guarantees. Um, Sometimes there's, you know, there's discussion on the front end. I've actually seen it a couple of times recently um, and spoke with some of my colleagues about how it was actually in writing from a buyer that they expected it to be X amount. Um, But usually, you know, they may tell you what, you know, how much you may receive on a return or what they're expecting. But again, never any guarantee the buyers will usually give you some time frame that they are expecting to roll. So it may be, oh, in, you know, we're expecting within the next year or in two years, that's when we're going to do our equity event and you'll be able to see some of this investment back. Um, but it's generally variable, right? Economy and, and what's going on um, in terms of what the buyer pool will look like. So, so um I mean, just great information. So literally in, in 15 minutes, you've hit on some amazing topics. Purchase price, holdbacks, earnouts, length of terms of, of employment contracts, real estate, you know, restrictive covenants, equity, earnouts, uh, real estate, uh, exclusivity, binding. I mean, that's this is a seven-day conversation that we're putting into like 15 minutes. So uh, you did an enormous, enormous job outlining everything. Is there anything else you want to add that may be of importance um, to uh, buyers or sellers on any kind of transaction re- regarding LOI until we jump into our um, our tax side of, of the sale. 
I mean, I just think overall, regardless, if you're the buyer um, and you're looking at terminating employment, right, maybe even before you sign a purchase agreement, um, which I think you need to be cautious about. But I think it's very important for a buyer to have a LOI that's clearly spelled out um, and so that, you know, both parties are on the same page with respect to most of the major terms. And then a seller, especially with these very complex group um, LOIs, I think it's also important, one, just to understand everything and sometimes to flesh things out a little more fully than they even are in that group's LOI, just because, again, it's I, I feel like at times you have more negotiation power at the LOI stage. So once you've signed something, if we if you didn't understand it or we think, oh, this isn't really market, let's see if we can change it, it sometimes becomes more difficult. And so I think it's a good idea to have that letter of intent reviewed and to, to fully negotiate it at that stage while the buyer is basically courting you versus after you've already signed, right? So I think that would be my advice is definitely to pay attention, not to disregard the LOI um, and to make sure that you're comfortable with all of the terms. Yeah, that's just great information. Like I said, this is a seven-day conversation. Um, we're trying to boil it down into um, a relatively short uh, short period of time, if you will. Lauren, thank you very much on that. And um, now I want to jump over to um, Danielle McBride, uh, who does an enormous amount of transactions, um, as, as does Lauren on a national basis. Um, and, uh, Danielle is our resident, uh, tax attorney also, uh, extraordinaire who's got a master's in tax. And, and I know that this could be a 75 day conversation, um, on, on tax, but there's so many things that, that, um, can really go sideways regarding tax issues in, in a merger and acquisition. And Danielle, I want you to, to touch on a few of those sort of landmines, if you will. And then Lauren, uh, Lauren said to two things. I want to know the tax consequences on, on earnout um, and what that looks like. And again, I, I know there's so much information you can provide, um, but let, I want you to, to discuss some of the tax issues that you run into um, through your training and experience. And, and you've been on both sides of the fence. Um, you've also done, right. you know, state planning, you know, for, for tax, for tax issues. So you, you got a well, well, uh, uh, versed, uh, bullpen, if you will. So name it, Danielle, take it away. I want to, I want to hear some things that, uh, our listeners want to hear about. Sure. I would just start off by saying I completely agree with Lauren though, about consulting with your advisors on the letter of intent. Uh, on some of these concepts because you don't get them fleshed out, you don't understand them. And then, especially with a corporate uh, sale, it becomes sometimes impossible to negotiate off of those things that are in the letter of intent with them. So you do, I do agree with her. It's really important to look. Don't just because people tell you letters of intent are non-binding, um, don't skip that step and in having it reviewed uh, by your advisor because it makes the our job a lot more difficult and it could really change some of the tax consequences for you. So, um, you know, as far as um, tax implications, you know, there's there's sort of some basic tax implications on, you know, on these deals, whether it's a private party or uh, a corporate uh, sale. Um, you know, it gets more complex when you've got the corporate sales and the DSOs that are buying these and you've got the rollover equity and earnouts and, and holdbacks and those sort of things. So, you know, your basic tax consequences, you got you got a sale of assets, uh, tangible assets, you know, your 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 fixed assets and you've got your goodwill. Uh, the goodwill um, 
you know, is it can be a big deal and there can be some some tax traps there as far as, you know, is this professional personal goodwill? Is it corporate uh, owned goodwill? And how is that allocated? Um, you know, there can also sometimes be some uh, negotiation as to how much is allocated uh, on uh, the side of the goodwill versus the tangible assets. And there are a few differences between, you know, those tax implications uh, and uh, whether buyers and sellers, whether it's private party or a corporate sale, how much are you going to allocate to either uh, to either transaction? So the complexity comes from, you know, the corporate sales and when you've got these holdbacks and rollover equity. So a private party is pretty much going to pay you cash at closing. So you're going to have your tangible assets and your goodwill allocation. You're going to have a portion that's taxed at ordinary rates. You're going to have a portion that's taxed at capital gains rates. Usually the bulk of that is capital gains for your goodwill allocation. Um, but on a corporate deal, you're not getting all cash at closing. You're usually getting maybe 70, 80% um, as uh, cash at closing. And the rest is, is in these earnouts, holdbacks, and rollover equity, like Lauren mentioned. So that rollover equity piece, um, you know, earnouts and holdbacks, those are usually taxed. They're usually tied to compensation, performance triggers, and things like that. They're paid over time. And a lot of times those are paid at compens as compensation. And uh, you get taxed at compensation rates, at ordinary income rates for those. Oh, okay. Your rollover equity, um, though, can be taxed as, um, you know, you can get tax deferral on that rollover equity. So you're investing in a parent company or a holding company that one of these corporate uh, buyers has. And so you're getting, you're contributing assets in exchange for uh, those, um, in exchange for goodwill often. Uh, and so, you know, you're 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 getting a, a tax deferral on this rollover equity uh, under Section 721, uh, and uh, you know you don't recognize any tax on that until you sell it later, until that company has what they call a liquidity event, or they bring in a new uh, private equity buyer, or they sell the entire company. Some of these are scaling up, and then they sell the entire business to someone uh, to someone new. That's when you would wind up with your uh, with your taxable. Uh, event uh, and recognize capital gains tax, usually because your contribution of assets is typically goodwill contribute in an exchange for that rollover equity. Question that, However, that I, have, I, have, I have one question for you. So on the capital gains side, um, you mentioned 721. Now you've got, a, you got another podcast coming up um, where we're actually going to touch even more on 721s, which are, are critical to the tax consequences. Um, but one thing I, I want to know is is investment in shares. Our, our, our clients get letters of intent, and it's you know A shares, C shares. What is the difference on, on the tax consequences, if any, on those particular A shares or B shares or, or C shares? Sure. Well, in most cases with a seller, they're receiving A or B shares. Typically, it's B shares. The A shares will be held by the members who created the entity, those owners, the directors, uh, the managers of that business. They may hold the A shares, which may mean that they have more uh, authority, more management power. Um, that's usually the big difference between class A, class B shares. Um, class B shares, class A shares can sometimes have a preferred return where money is paid out to those class A shareholders first before the class B shareholders, which are usually all your doctors. 
Um, you know, you can also have class class C shares where you don't have a typical equity, but maybe you have an associate. Seller has an associate who wants uh, who they want to keep on board. Um, you know, buyer wants them to stay on board, so they offer some class C shares that are really a profits interest in the business, and those can be subject to you know vesting requirements and um, continued employment. Uh, you know, hitting performance triggers, things like that. And they won't, uh, you know, they won't get a, a return on those until they hit, you know, the four years that they have to work with them. Um, so those class C shares usually have no, um, they don't share in the existing uh, value of the of the practice. It's usually just a go forward uh, thing. So they will, once those shares vest, they will have a piece of the pie in any growth in the business, not in the existing value of the business. So, um, you know, and, and those, those can get complicated and, and, you know, now there's something called an 83B election that can come in. So you're not getting taxed. So you can limit your tax consequences and, uh, you know, get a substantial portion of this growth in capital gains versus ordinary income tax like compensation. Uh, on these amounts, it can get very complicated. Eighty-three B sounds like another podcast. Yes, I, I think you. I think you just. Te- I think you just teed yourself up to another another ad bat here. I got. I got yeah. you. I got you. Well, you know, and the funny thing, I'm listening to you talk and all this information, um, and I, 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 it's amazing to me how many, and I hate to say this, CPAs and financial advisors don't understand this when they get into these. Absolutely. When they get into these transactions. And then it becomes very complex when someone like you understands the, the absolute tax side of this, has a financial advisor on the other side, and, and doesn't explain or can't explain to the to the seller uh, why it is so beneficial yet risky um, to a certain extent in, in the long run. So I'm just you know mm-hmm. I, I'm sitting here listening to all this, and these are the questions that our CPAs are asking us. Um, so, yeah. you know, well, and back up, they're asking you, they're not asking me. Yeah. <laughs> I, would t- I would tell <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Oh, they ask they're me asking this, me. And- they, they ask me these questions. I'm getting you on speed dial. So I, we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're good with that. We're good with that. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I tell you, I, I, like I say, you, you we, we got another podcast coming up with you and I, we're going to, I know we're going to cover, um, 721 and 83Bs, but, um, Danielle, thank you so much for this information. Um, I think the information that you gave was was just enough to let our our our, our clients know, our listeners know, um, or you know maybe that maybe they don't even they don't even not even doing business with us, but yet they're going to get their financial advisors, their CPAs, and their lawyers, you know, in, in, involved. But um, David Danielle, extraordinary job. Um, I, I look forward to our next podcast, um, and I know uh, Lauren's going to have some uh, further input later on down the road on some of these podcasts, but. Um, Folks, we are about to conclude the Advisory Insights podcast. My name has been Stuart Oberman and uh, Oberman Law Firm. So uh, if you want to reach out to Lauren, please feel free to email Lauren at Lauren, L-A-W-R-E-N, at ObermanLaw.com and Danielle, uh, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, at ObermanLaw.com. Phone number for the firm is 770-886-2400. Folks, thanks so much for um, listening in. Danielle, Lauren, thank you so much for your for your time. And um, uh, I know it's invaluable, invaluable information. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks a lot. Have a fantastic day. 
Thank you for joining us on Advisory Insights. This show is brought to you by Oberman Law Firm, a business-centric law firm representing local, regional, and national clients in a wide range of practice areas, including healthcare, mergers and acquisitions, corporate transactions, and regulatory compliance.